Beyond Barbarossa, the Eastern Front. Episode 4, The Soviet Response. Welcome back to the only podcast dedicated to the history of the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, host and author of the Eastern Front Trilogy. In the last three episodes, we looked at the forces that Germany and the USSR brought to their titanic conflict in 1941. As we saw, the German attack on June 22, 1941, caught the Soviets unready. The Luftwaffe destroyed most of the Soviet Air Force on the ground, before they could even get pilots into planes. The Soviets did a lot of retreating, a lot of surrendering, a lot of abandoning weapons, and a lot of dying. The Germans did a lot of advancing, but they too did a lot of dying, more than they expected, a lot more. This episode will describe the first few weeks of the war, the astounding German penetration into Soviet territory, and the astonishing costs for both sides. Let's start with a closer look at the Soviet response. As I said in the last episode, in the 1930s, the USSR had the largest army in the world, and this persisted even into 1941. This was a major factor in Soviet as well as German planning. In 1939 and 1940, the Soviets fought the Winter War against Finland. We'll cover that in a bonus episode in the future. They learned a lot during that war and they applied the lessons they learned to their new defensive plans. They knew that Germany would attack sooner or later. State Defense Plan 41, or DP-41, was prepared by Chief of the General Staff Georgi Konstantinovich Zhukov in 1941. This plan called for deploying 237 of the Red Army's 303 divisions in the West into three special military districts, Baltic, Western, and Kiev. 186 of the total divisions would go to three operating fronts. As described last episode, a front was a group of armies, kind of like the German army groups. At the outbreak of war, they became the Northwestern, Western, and Southwestern fronts. These fronts were organized into successive belts, along and behind the border. The first belt was a light defensive screen, and the second and third, all about the same size, added depth and allowed the Red Army to conduct counterattacks, in theory. The good news for the Red Army was that German intelligence had no idea that these rear echelons even existed. Still, on June 22nd, none of the rear echelon units had taken their positions according to Defense Plan 41. In fact, most of the forward rifle divisions were still at least 80 kilometers or close to 50 miles from the frontier. So we can see that the Red Army had severe organizational problems. Just to get a, an idea of what that means, the largest single formation in the Red Army was the Mechanized Corps, which was still in development when the war began. On paper, each corps comprised two tank divisions of 375 tanks and 10,000 men. 
plus one motorized division, which also included some tanks. That sounds formidable. But the tanks lacked the support they needed. Tanks in 1941, as we can see today, are vulnerable to nimble infantry attack. Worse, the corps, which theoretically included over 36,000 men each and 1,000 tanks, were still scattered on the opening day of the war. And because this was a new structure and a new operational division, the command structure was inconsistent and confused. People were still learning their roles and who to communicate with. All this meant that coordinating operations in battle, which was hard enough at the best of times, was nearly impossible in the June 1941. Let's take a look at the rifle divisions. On paper, each division contained about 14,000 men in three regiments of three battalions each, plus artillery regiments, a light tank battalion, and support services. Two to three of these divisions made a rifle corps, and three corps of three divisions each made up a field army, plus a mechanized corps, some artillery regiments, and an anti-tank brigade. But on June 22nd, most divisions were significantly under strength. Instead of 14,000 men, most had 8,000 to 10,000 men on June 22nd, 1941. So on that fateful day, the invasion by the Germans caught the Soviets by surprise, unprepared. Despite the fact that there were significant pockets of fierce resistance by the Soviets, German panzers and infantry tore through all the defenses. The Soviets did respond quickly. Yes. Being communist, their first instinct was to reorganize. Stalin and his inner circle set up a new centralized command structure called the Stavka. The innermost core of the Stavka consisted of Stalin himself, Commissar of Defense Semyon Timoshenko, and Chief of the General Staff Georgi Zhukov. Then they renamed the special military districts the Northwestern, Western, and Southwestern Fronts. The Stavka's first order to their forces was no retreat. Not only that, they ordered all fronts to counterattack and push the Germans back across the new border. Futile orders. Perhaps the best known response of the USSR in this war was the scorched earth policy. Stalin's first radio broadcast after the attack on July 3rd urged all citizens to resist, to form guerrilla groups, to evacuate anything the enemy could use and to destroy what they could not take away. Just one aside, burning their own homes happened rarely. The Germans did a lot more of that. This evacuation included relocating whole factories. By the end of 1941, the Soviets managed to transfer 1,500 factories, 1,300 of which made munitions and other military gear beyond the reach of German bombs, usually east of the Ural Mountains. Dismantling was often done under bombardment or air attack. Getting production back up to full speed would take almost a year, leaving the Red Army with critical shortages of weapons and ammunition in the meantime. What they could not remove, they destroyed. Food, rail lines, locomotives, repair shops, and more. 
Soviet troops breached the hydroelectric dam across the Dnipro River and removed generating equipment. They even collapsed mines. This evacuation put a major kink in the Germans' plans. They had counted, after all, on using Soviet resources for their own purposes. So let's zoom in now on individual fronts. The Northwestern Front, under General Fyodor Isidorovich Kuznetsov, was the weakest of the three, with three armies and two mechanized corps. Field Marshal Ritter von Lieb's Army Group North tore through them as much as 90 kilometers on that first day. On June 25th, the third day of the war, Kuznetsov's forces had retreated to the western Dvina River, now called the Dogava, which means they had given up all of Lithuania. The Panzers crossed the Dogava River the next day because the Red Army had failed to destroy any bridges. Kuznetsov withdrew even farther north. This left the roads to Leningrad open to the enemy. Stavka ordered Kuznetsov to defend along a line between the cities of Pskov and Ostrov, taking them 20 to 50 kilometers east of the Latvian-Russian border. In other words, they're now in Russia proper, not in a buffer state. Once again, the Red Army was too slow. The Panzers seized more crossings over the Dugava River and kept coming. On June 30th, Lestovka fired Kuznetsov and replaced him with Lieutenant General P.P. Subenikov of the 8th Army. They sent Lieutenant General N.F. Vatutin as his chief of staff and also sent him to do defensive planning. This reorganization would have major ramifications later in the war. But the Germans didn't give the Red Army time to reorganize. The 4th Panzer Group under General Hopner passed north of Peskov, giving it a straight line toward the ultimate goal, Leningrad. On their left, the Wehrmacht infantry cleared the Red Army forces remaining for the Baltic coast and Estonia. By July 4th, the Panzers had captured Ostrov, and on the 8th, Peskov, destroying the Stalin line and entering the Leningrad Oblast itself. Stavka ordered the Northern Front to resist the German advance. But by July 6th, the Germans had penetrated 450 kilometers or 270 miles, captured nearly all of the Baltic states, killed or captured 90,000 men, destroyed over 1,000 tanks and 1,000 aircraft, and more. Meanwhile, Finnish forces were penetrating into Karelia, northwest of Leningrad and around Lake Laloga. The only response the Soviets could muster at this point was to erect defenses along the Luga River south of Leningrad and press all city citizens into digging trenches in a last-ditch effort. Sorry about the pun. So now let's shift our view south a little bit to the Western Front. German Army Group Center's objective was to penetrate on either side of the Bialystok salient. So take a look at the map on the website. Advance toward the Belarusian capital of Minsk, encircle and then destroy all Red Army forces west of the Dnipro River. The two arms of the pincer would meet at Smolensk, in Russia itself, and then plot the ultimate advance on Moscow. Well, that was the plan. In this sector, the Western Front, the Red Army was commanded by Army General Dmitry Grigorovich Pavlov. 
This sector had the greatest breakdown of command and control, crippled by the Germans' advanced sabotage of communications. Pavlov's second-in-command, Lieutenant General Ivan Vasilievich Bolden, had to fly through heavy enemy opposition to the front at Bielostok just to assess the situation and try to organize a counterattack. But without any reliable information, the opposition was doomed. Counterattacks were fantasies. When Stalin and his military right-hand Timoshenko ordered a general counteroffensive at 9.15pm on the first day, so more than half a day after the beginning of the operation, the men on the ground tried to obey, not because they thought they could do anything, but because they were less afraid of the Germans than of Stalin's reaction if they did not. The Panzers tore through Soviet defenses and counteroffensives. Outflanking the Soviet Third Army and reaching Vilnius by the evening of the second day of the war. On June 24th, Pavlov tried to organize a counterattack to prevent Red Army forces around Bialystok from being encircled. He failed. By the time the few Soviet tanks and men left got into position, the Panzers had already swept past. By the end of the third day, June 25th, the Soviet 6th Cavalry Corps had suffered more than 50% casualties one tank division was completely out of ammunition. Pavlov ordered his forces to pull further back to the city of Slonim, but few actually got the message. The result was not an orderly re retreat, but a rout. When the Soviet 10th Army retreated to the Stara River, they found they could not cross. The German bombers had destroyed all the bridges. By 26 June, the fourth day of the invasion, Panzers were surrounding Minsk, capital of Belarus. Pavlov ordered a joint air and ground operation to stop the Germans, but this also failed. By the end of June, the Western Front, that being the 10th, 3rd, and 13th Armies, was no more. Captured in huge encirclements of hundreds of thousands of men in the Bialystok and Minsk pockets. Stalin called General Pavlov back to Moscow along with his chief of staff and several other senior officers, and had them shot for failure. Marshal Timoshenko, Stalin's military right hand, took command of the Western Front, but had no more success. In less than three weeks, German Army Group Center had pushed 600 kilometers, or 260 miles, into Soviet territory. They took all of Belarus, killed or captured nearly half a million men, and wiped out almost all Soviet military materiel. Moving to the southwestern front, in what's Ukraine. Remember how I said that Stalin had ordered the greatest defensive buildup in Ukraine, anticipating the German's strongest attack would come here? He was wrong, but this is where the Germans encountered the greatest resistance. Now, it's true that in western Ukraine, many of the locals welcomed the Germans as liberators from communism. Villagers greeted the Wehrmacht with gifts of bread and salt, traditional welcome gifts in some places. But their fantasies of liberty, or an independent Ukrainian state, were quickly dashed. The Nazis soon arrested Ukrainian leaders who spoke of independence. And on the ground, more often than meeting welcoming committees, the Germans found themselves fighting Ukrainian civilians and partisans, including women. Field Marshal von Bock wrote in his journal, The Russians, he called 
the, all the people of the Soviet Union, Russians. The Russians are defending themselves stubbornly. S women have often been seen in combat. According to statements made by prisoners, political commissars are spurring maximum resistance by reporting that we kill all prisoners. Where is the lie, Von Bock? Here and there, Russian officers have shot themselves to avoid being captured. End quote. To quote from a German war diary of the time, quote, Only the most forward pickets were taken by surprise. The 457th Infantry Regiment had to battle all day long with the Soviet non-commissioned officer training school of Visokoya, only a mile beyond the river. The 250 NCO cadets resisted stubbornly and skillfully. Not till the afternoon was their resistance broken by artillery fire. The 466th Infantry Regiment fared even worse. No sooner were its battalions across the river than they were attacked from the flank by advanced detachments of the Soviet 199th Reserve Division. Commander of the Southwestern Front of the Red Army was Colonel General Mikhail Petrovich Kirponos. His forces consisted of four armies along the Bug River and south to the slopes of the Carpathian Mountains, along with eight mechanized corps, seven rifle corps, and an airborne corps. In, ad in addition, he had two armies and two more mechanized corps in reserve. But as always, on June 22nd, they were still getting into position. While General Kirpono strove to carry out the orders for counterattacks, he could only do so in a piecemeal, uncoordinated way. These counterattacks were savage, and they rattled the invaders. But ultimately, they were ineffectual, and the Red Army's losses were heavy. By the second day of the invasion, the Germans had penetrated 60 kilometers, or 24 miles. The third day, June 24th, every regimental commander of the 19th Tank Division was killed. The Soviet mechanized corps forced the Germans back about 10 kilometers, but the next day, panzers, air support and artillery hit back hard and pushing the Red Army even further back than they had started at. While this counterattack failed, it did slow the Germans down a bit. On June 26th, the Germans captured Lutsk and Dubno. By the end of the day, they were at Rivni, then called Rovno. Ready, ready to drive on Kiev. On June 28th, the Red Army abandoned the city of Lviv. By July 9th, Kirponos had withdrawn behind the border of 1939, the border before the partition of Poland. Then, on July 2nd, the southern group struck northeast from Moldova, driving east to the Black Sea and Odessa. German and Romanian forces together reached the Prut River on the first day, taking the territory of Bessarabia that Stalin had seized two years earlier. Stavka responded by organizing the southern front of two armies. So here we have weeks into the war, and the Soviets are doing nothing but retreating. David Glantz reports that General Kirpono set up what's called blocking detachments. These were units set up behind the frontline defenders, whose orders were to shoot any Red Army soldier who withdrew from combat without orders. By July 9th, the Germans had captured the Ukrainian cities of Berzhchiv, Novgorod, Volinsky, and Zhitomir. They were threatening to encircle 
the entire left wing of the southwestern front. Now, while the southwestern front held on better than the northwestern and western fronts, they paid an immense cost. 242,000 soldiers killed, captured, and missing. They lost 4,381 tanks, 5,800 guns and mortars, and 1,218 combat aircraft. By the end of the second week of July, the Germans were positioned to attack Kiev and the heart of Ukraine. Through the summer of 1941, it appeared that the Germans would conquer the USSR just as they had Poland, Norway, and France, Greece, and Yugoslavia. But there was a glimmer of hope. There were signs of a different outcome. The farther the Germans went, the more spread out their forces became. The longer the supply lines grew. And they were fighting on foreign soil, in a country whose people were increasingly hostile. They were not welcoming liberators. The retreating Red Army, on the other hand, left almost nothing behind that the enemy could use and destroyed what they could not carry. Another sign of change. By early July, the Stavka was bringing forward huge army reserves. Army after army, division after division. David Glantz puts it this way, quote, The greatest German intelligence error lay in underestimating the Soviet ability to reconstitute shattered units and form new forces from scratch. Given the German expectation of a swift victory, their neglect of the Soviet capability is perhaps understandable. In practice, however, the Red Army's ability to create new divisions as fast as the Germans smashed existing ones was a principal cause of the German failure in 1941. End quote. Spoiler alert. Glantz goes on to explain that Soviets expected that every army would have to be completely replaced every four to eight months during heavy combat. So they extended military reserve service obligations to age 50 and set up a network of training facilities. Think of that. The Soviets knew that their entire armed forces would be captured or killed within eight months, so they'd need to replace them. Millions upon millions of men. The Soviets were able to call up 5,300,000 reservists by the end of June, one week after the invasion started. And they called up more every few weeks after. By late June, it had mobilized and deployed eight new armies, 13 more in July, 14 in August, 3 in September, 5 in October, 9 in November, and 2 in December. Whole armies. While the Germans were losing 2,800 men a day across an expanding front, the Soviets were bringing 53 new armies to the fighting. By the end of 1941, despite the staggering losses on the front lines, more than 4 million the Red Army had 592 divisions in the field, where the German intelligence had estimated 300 in total. 97 of these Soviet divisions were transferred from the east, and 25 People's Militia divisions were raised in Moscow and Leningrad. The Red Army's strength grew by over a million men by August 31st, to a total of some 8 million by the end of 1941. So let's assess. It's mid-July, 1941. 
Army Group North has smashed through Latvia and is ready to move on Leningrad. In the south, the 1st Panzer Group had captured close to half of Ukraine and was closing on Kiev. And at the center, the 2nd and 3rd Panzer Groups were getting close to the Dnieper River east of Minsk. Apparently believing the best defense is a good offense, the Stavka ordered a counterattack to stop the advancing Germans. When that failed, they ordered another, then another, and still the Panzers ruled east. In the Western Front, facing Army Group Center, Marshal Timoshenko ordered two mechanized corps and seven rifle divisions to attack the German rear and flanks around Orsha in Belarus, two-thirds of the way east from Minsk toward Smolensk, which, as I said, is in Russia proper. In five days of fighting, four panzer divisions savaged the Soviet mechanized corps and kept on going towards Smolensk. Again, to quote from David Glantz, the battle for Smolensk itself began on July 10th, when hurrying Heinz Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group crossed the Dnipro and destroyed the 13th Red Army as it was escaping from the Minsk pocket. By July 13th, the German 39th Motorized Corps and Guderian's Panzer Corps smashed not only the 13th Army, but also the 19th, and it was only 11 miles from Smolensk. The Stavka demanded more counterattacks, ordering six armies to, quote, liquidate the enemy penetration at Vitebsk. Do not weaken the Orsha and Mogilev front. Conduct active operations along the Gomel and Bobrusk axis to exert pressure on the rear of the enemy, end quote. These efforts all failed, mostly because the armies ordered to counterattack were decimated shadows of forces already mauled by the Germans. Remember how divisions were supposed to have 14,000 men each? By this point, most had fewer than 3,000 men left. A group of three cavalry divisions under Colonel General O.I. Gorodnikov, along with a rifle division, raided behind the German lines. They disrupted in command and communications. But it didn't stop hurrying Heinz Guderian. He kept moving towards Smolensk from the south, while Hoth led 3rd Panzer Group from the north. After three days of house-to-house -house fighting, Guderian's forces took Smolensk. Generals Kluge and Hoth's forces pushed east of the city, trapping the survivors of three Red Armies in a huge pocket. Losses were great. The 18th Panzer Division had only 12 operating tanks left after the battle. Its commander remarked they, they would have to stop the heavy casualty rate, quote, if we do not intend to win ourselves to death, end quote. With Smolensk captured and huge numbers of Red Army troops surrounded and trapped in a pocket, the German high command and the, arm, the senior commanders in the field wanted to concentrate on destroying those captured men. But hurrying Heinz knew his forces could not do that and take the next crucial crossing of the Desna River at Elnia, east of Smolensk. So, characteristically, he chose to keep moving to the next target. Stavka, on its part, also did not wish to waste any more time. Zhukov ordered four reserve armies to orchestrate the largest counterattack to date. Its goal? To defeat the Germans and rescue the trapped armies behind Smolensk. Five operational groups began concentric attacks toward the pocket. 
This huge operation caused immense numbers of casualties on both sides. But again, the Soviets' inability to coordinate their operations, along with their poor logistical support, failed. Another echo of 2022. This was a critical point for the German invasion. Again, turning to David Glantz, quote, the cumulative effect of these poorly coordinated Soviet actions was to deprive the Germans of operational flexibility, erode their offensive strength, and convince the German leadership of the wisdom of halting direct offensive action along the Moscow axis in favor of a thrust into the seemingly more vulnerable Ukraine. So the Germans changed their strategy. On July 19th, with Smolensk in their hands, Hitler issued Führer Directive Number 33, ordering German forces to prevent the escape of large enemy forces into the depths of Russian territory and annihilate them. His Directive Number 34 gave the second and third Panzer groups 10 days to restore and refill their formations and ordered Army Group Center to shift to a defensive posture. Meanwhile, uh, Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group was to move north to support Army Group North and its operations against Leningrad. In short, the Germans were giving up on attacking Moscow for the time being, and focusing instead on taking Leningrad and Kiev. This would have immense consequences for the rest of the year, and indeed the rest of the war. But that's enough for one episode. Wow, that was long. So next week, we'll come back to look at the rest of the summer of 1941 in the East. And we'll also take a look at what's going on in the rest of the war at that time. If I've made any mistakes, please let me know. You can email me at contact at writtenword.ca. All the links you'll need are also in the show notes and on the website, beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. Till then, thanks again to all who supported the Kickstarter campaign and who have supported this podcast by subscribing. A special thanks to those who have supported us through Patreon. My fluffy research assistant, Ragnar the Destroyer, also thanks you. Remember that Becoming a regular supporter through Patreon gets you not only episodes sooner than the rest of the world, it also gets you the special bonus episodes. First up, the 1939 invasion of Poland. And the next, the Winter War in 1939 and 40 between the USSR and Finland. So until next episode, people, stay healthy, support good causes, and keep your paddles in the water. Original music written and recorded by Nicholas Burry, and I'm Scott Burry. Slava Ukraina.